Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Daily Friend Show. I'm your host today, Terence Corrigan, standing in for the inestimable Nicholas Lorimer, who has, in the course of pursuing justice, human rights, and uh, freedom, been injured. Well, that's the story we, um, we, we, we're giving out, and we're not backing away from it. Um, so I will be hosting today, and I have with me in the studio the Lion of the East Rand, Marius Roet. Uh, how's How it, Terence? Yeah. And Sauragon, the wise and venerable. Thank you. I'm wise, but venerable, and on the road, and I'll be stopping shortly. But go ahead. Well, uh, this is Mzanzi, and one has to take what one can get. I understand. Um, okay, so without uh, without too much ado, let's jump into it. The Economist has led with a um, with an interesting story um, on the state of democracy in Africa, or rather, perceptions of it. Now, this is entitled "Why Africans Are Losing Faith in Democracy," but with the somewhat chilling um, uh, subhead, the alternatives will undoubtedly be far worse. I think if we think about what's been going on, um, Africa during the 70s and 80s was the continent of, of the coup and the junta, well, along with, uh, with, with, with Latin America, but, but, but certainly um, uh, in many ways a uh, somewhat more afflicted continent. Uh, during the 90s, that went out of favor, and the multi-party election has uh, has come to has come to reign. The African Union declared that uh, it was um, it was going to stand firm against unconstitutional changes of government. In recent years, we've seen um, the pendulum swinging back um, in places like Niger, in uh, Mauritania, in uh, Mauritania, I believe, um, in Mali, which was which was one of um, uh, one of the great success stories of the reform movement. Uh, more than that, we hear that um, polling, uh, mostly conducted by Afrobarometers, showing that there is a growing sense of frustration with democracy, and in our own country, um, close to two thirds of people say that they'd be willing to forgo regular elections in exchange for governments that can deliver jobs, housing, and security. Not a very pleasant, uh, a pleasant picture, it seems. Marius, what's your take on this? Yeah, it doesn't really surprise me. Um, as the old saying goes, you can't eat democracy. And I think for a lot of people in a lot of parts of Africa, uh, democracy and human rights and all that kind of thing, it's still pretty much an abstract concept. You know, things like freedom of speech and freedom of association and the right to vote every four or five years or whatever doesn't really mean all that much when you haven't eaten for two days and you don't know where your next meal is coming from and you're worried about your child who also hasn't eaten. You know, so I don't, it doesn't really surprise me that there's these kind of sentiments around the continent. At the same time, democracy is also not uh, always a bulwark against the problems in, in the world. I was thinking about it earlier. Argentina is a place that's been democracy since uh, been democracy again since the mid 1980s, I think, when they got rid of the uh, late 1980s, when they got rid of the military winter there. But it's been an economic basket case for about 70 years, and uh, so even sometimes the the kind of self correction mechanisms you get from democracy doesn't always uh, help countries. As I say, I think Argentina is quite a good example. Even Kenya, to a degree, Kenya is sort of on the right track at the moment. And they have regular changes of governments at the ballot box. But there's still serious problems there. Uh, 
the economy is starting to grow. It seems to be taking off, but they do still have problems with inter-ethnic conflict and corruption and so on. But I think what's pretty interesting out of that survey uh, or out of that article from The Economist, uh, what they also pointed out was that a lot of people uh, in the first world or in the Western world also are quite um, skeptical of democracy. Uh, I think, uh, I don't remember the exact stat, but I think they said 20% of Americans under the age of 30 uh, said they wouldn't mind living under a dictator. So, and also there's growing proportion of people in the US and in France. Uh, those are the two countries mentioned that are quite uh, also skeptical of democracy as a stance. So these are quite worrying trends. And uh, I think it was Winston Churchill who said democracy is an absolutely terrible system, but the best out of all the ones we've tried. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's obviously, I mean, it's, and we, we do know nearly every single country that, uh, I mean, to, to develop economically, uh, liberal democracy is pretty important. You do have your outliers, places like uh, China and uh, Vietnam and so on. But in general, uh, the, a country is more likely to be rich if it's democratic. Well, I think the, the, the Chinese example is interesting. Um, we've seen uh, over the last decade, the government has been pushing very aggressively to shift the narrative. Um, excuse me. I think we are probably going to have the first on-air sneeze from the host today because I feel this like tickling the back of my nose. I, I was the first to to to, to sneeze on the show. Um, I've <laughs> um, but yeah, over the last decade or so, the um, uh, the Chinese Communist Party has been actively pushing the uh, the idea that uh, democracy is either something that should be relativized to the point of essentially essential irrelevance. Or it's simply inappropriate. In fact, I once had a discussion with a um, uh, with a Chinese diplomat who made that very, very clear. Um, sometime later, I was in a conference with um, uh, in Germany, and a um, and a Chinese diplomat uh, speaking to his audience and tailoring his messaging. I think quite you know quite quite cleverly. He said, yes, of course, you know China. We believe in democracy and human rights. And he leaned forward with this almost conspiratorial look on his face and said, "But with a Chinese understanding." Which I, which I suppose means that if you're some sort of civil libertarian big mouth, it doesn't work, work out too well for you. We'll be turning, we'll be turning to that issue. Um, do you think, Marius, though, that uh, as you say, these things are um, uh, it's the best it's it, it's the best thing we have, the worst form of government aside from all the others. What's your response to the idea that? Uh, you know, if, if if that we need a strong man to take care of our material needs first, and then you know we can talk about the niceties of popular participation and uh, you know multi-party governance. Uh, I mean, in very few countries do you see economic developments go along with a strong man. I think uh, Singapore is probably the only country that really comes to mind. In most countries where there's a strong man in charge who runs roughshod over democratic norms and so on. People, yeah, people are poor. There's no real economic development. And we know Singapore is uh, quite, a, um, it's quite a rich country, but I think a lot of it is also not necessarily because of Lee Kuan Yew. I think it's also because of where the country is situated. Uh, it's quite small. It's really on the crossroads of the world. They're in the, uh, I think it's called the Malacca Straits there between Indonesia, close to China and all that kind of thing. So in general, I don't think you need a strong man for democracy you need there's all kinds of more or things that come together with it things like institutions uh, economic freedom and so on so i don't think a strong man is the solution and 
I, I think it's uh, it's a dangerous path to think that uh, a strong man is what's going to fix South Africa uh, or any country. And often, uh, as that Economist article, if people have a, um, a subscription to the Economist, they definitely go read it, I think. As that uh, Economist article says, uh, often when the strong men uh, take over, it's quite hard to shift them uh, later on down the line, even if they promise that they're you know, going to have free elections and so on. Uh, the example they use is uh, of uh, Obiang Guema in uh, Equatorial Guinea, who seized power in 1979, and he's still around. And uh, if he does uh, uh, give up power, it's probably going to be to his son. So it's not exactly a place where there's, uh, you know, people are giving up uh, power easily. Yeah, you know, I think I, I think that there's there's a that there's an epistemological epistemological trap here that uh, in a democracy you can decry the failure of democracy. When you have a strong man, it's rather more difficult to decry those failures. Um, and I think that Africa in particular would need to be a little cautious about this because you know we had these uh, uh, these strong men promising promising development. And uh, remember Julius Nerere, who is things went, you know, wasn't the most, um, uh, uh, wasn't the most awful. Um, personally, you know, an honest man, although highly, uh, highly repressive leader, saying that, well, you know, we are at war and we have to come, we have to ensure that we conquer poverty and disease and ignorance before we play by someone else's book of book of rules. By the end of it, uh, you know, Tanzania was the most aid dependent, uh, uh, one of the most aid dependent countries in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, his his reputation, I think, was in a sense salvaged purely, but you know, by his own personal merit, certainly not by his stewardship of of of, of the country. Well, um, I see that Sora is having some some difficulty connecting with us, so I think let's um, uh, let's you and I transition onto the next uh, um, uh, onto the next issue. Now, as we all know, I'm the last of the great couch potatoes, so this is probably something that doesn't that, that, that doesn't mean a great deal to me, but I think it certainly will to 95% of South Africa. It seems that our sporting codes could face losing the right to use the anthem and the um, and the flag in um, in 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 foreign tournaments. Uh, Marius, you are a um, uh, a doyen of all things sporting. What's this about? I think doing of all things sporting is a bit of an exaggeration, but I do like to follow a bit of cricket and rugby. But uh, what it's about is the World Anti-Doping uh, Agency. Um, they've said that South Africa could uh, be stripped of the right to use the national flag or sing the national anthem at uh, uh, various sporting events. Uh, as we all know, the Springboks are busy taking part in the World Cup in France, and the Praetors are also in India at the moment for the Cricket World Cup, our first games tomorrow. So what this is all about is that South Africa, along with, I think, practically every country on earth, has signed up to an anti-doping, um, uh, not manifesto, but uh, uh, kind of... Convention. Uh, convention, there we go, thank you. Uh, yeah. And so that means that our various legislation has to be in line with this anti-doping um, convention. And we had a deadline of... Uh, the, the deadline that WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, set was the 13th of October. But unsurprisingly... And the South African government hasn't met that deadline. And if I recall correctly, I think the only country in the world that also hasn't met that deadline is Bermuda, if I'm uh, not incorrect. So because we're not going to meet this deadline, in theory, this could mean that uh, the Springboks and the Proteas and actually any other national teams could be stripped of playing from playing under the national flag or using the national anthem. We, we still, we'll still be able to compete, 
but will technically have to be playing kind of as a neutral team. He won't technically be representing South Africa. So it's not a massive train smash, but it's actually incredibly embarrassing. And just comes down to the ANC government, you know, it's just dropping the ball on these small things. As I mentioned in the show the other day, there was a column that Peter Bruce wrote about uh, mentioning uh, Warren Gatland, who's the uh, coach of the Welsh uh, rugby team. And right. Warren Gatlin's uh, kind of philosophy is do the simple things right and you'll be fine. And this is where the South African government can't even do the simple things. This was a small thing. You just had to meet this deadline. But they couldn't do it. And now we, we uh, look, I think most probably there'll be uh, some kind of concession will be made. And we'll probably still be allowed to sing the anthem and play under the national flag and all that kind of thing. But we're just, we're just going to look incredibly foolish. And it's just... Obviously, nobody kept track of these deadlines. Nobody made sure that the legislation was updated. And it's, as I say, it's just a microcosm of the ANC government who, you know, I've said before on the show, they're the opposite of King Midas. And we all know King Midas used to uh, turn everything he touched into gold. And whatever you think the opposite of gold is, that's, yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, so it's just, it's one of these absolutely ridiculous things. And I think anybody who loves sports, and this isn't going to just affect the, the rugby and cricket teams. It's going to affect any national team that's, you know, any South African national team. And we we might get the we might meet the deadline. As I say, maybe a concession will be made, but just shows the absolute lack of attention to detail of this government. It's you know not getting the simple things right, which means the complex things also don't get uh, get done properly. And it has all kinds of knock-on effects, and we all know what what happens. And I mean I think everyone listening to the show has been affected by things like load shedding, potholes, uh, water shedding now. It's because simple things aren't getting water done. Water shifting, properly. water shifting, please. Water shifting, sorry. The simple things don't get done properly, which means water complex shift. things are breaking down later. And a big country like South Africa is a very complex entity. It's difficult to run. And but the people who are running it don't know what they're doing. Sora, we were talking about the possibility that uh, South Africa's sporting teams might be reduced to uh, singing the Leo Luop and, uh, you know, hoisting the transnet flag uh, because we, we, we haven't got our anti-doping uh, anti legislation um, uh, in, in, in train. What's, what, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, well, first I, I wouldn't mind singing the Leo Luop. Uh, let's put it this way. I agree with Maurice completely. I would just like to add that perhaps what we can arrange is that in the event that we win the World Cup, that any South African politician or office bearer is barred from entering the stadium and pretending that the, the reflected glory is theirs. Um, I think that would be as good a payback as we could possibly as we could possibly get. But it's very much a sign of, you know, it, it, the grey listing was a perfect example, uh, more serious perhaps. But this mm. is this is the kind this is a kind of pre-election stunt that the ANC would never have dreamed would happen. And it's it's just visceral. It'll cheese people off no end. Um, and if we do win it, it'll show that uh, you know what it's meant to show is that that's, none of this is anything to do with the government. Our success is our own. Yeah, well, look, I, I sincerely hope that uh, you know Storm Opposer isn't going to isn't going to demand to be carried and shoulder high by the by the uh, by the Boko. Uh, They're probably the well. people who could do it. Well, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to I'm not going to comment on that. Being as how uh, you know I probably sit a little bit over uh, over the weight limit myself. Um, well, 
Um, moving moving str uh, swiftly along and uh, to distant climes, uh, this uh, this to Oslo, where the Nobel Peace Committee, uh, the Nobel Prize Committee, has just awarded the prize for peace to an Iranian dissident, um, a Nagras Mohammadi, who um, has been um, she's a she's a Kurdish woman, uh, a campaigner for for human rights and for women's rights particularly. In Iran, a place where uh, let's say these are imperfectly developed, and is currently in a in a prison cell in um, uh, in Tehran, from which from which she has apparently been able to smuggle a number of um, uh, reports about conditions, which uh, would seem to make our own uh, seem quite our, our own detention facilities seem um, rather tame by comparison. Uh, there's there is something to me that seems bizarre about this that uh this is still happening in the in in the 21st century you know iran isn't a small back uh, a backwards place it's um you know at one stage it was on the cusp of modernity and seems to have uh consciously pushed its way back sorry your thoughts well, it is the world's premier theocratic state, and when Iran says it wants to do something horrible, um, we have to believe them. They, they will do it, and they have a reputation of clamping down on dissent. Sadly, I think, I think one of the problems is that the the it, it's a mixture of, of having a, wor a worthy recipient from a from a human rights point of view, but in fact, the, the peace prize has actually not been awarded for peace all that mm. often that I can think of in the last few decades. And I right. suspect that the Nobel Committee in a sort of sort of paternalistic European way wants to obviously highlight her cause and embarrass Iran, which is which is actually fine, but I don't think it actually makes any difference. It doesn't act, it doesn't advance anything, it doesn't do anything. With a, with a regime like uh, like Iran, that is really not going to make a difference one way or the other. And when you give the fact that the Americans seem to have rolled over uh, in their dealings with Iran in the last year or so and essentially empowered it to both complete its nuclear reactors and to, I'm sorry, its, uh, uh, it, it, its nuclear program. <clears throat> and the fact that horrible as the demonstrations and their treatment of the demonstrations were, they are still there, they are <clears throat> still massing um, Hezbollah, arming Hamas, etc., etc., I'm not sure I see the point. It's it's like a it's it's like an exercise in in sort of self congratulation on the part of the Europeans, as far as I can see. Marius, what's your what's your take on this? Yeah, I think the Nobel Peace Prize is obviously still something. If if you get it awarded to you, it is something you can be pretty proud of. But we know that. You know, Barack Obama was given the Nobel Peace Prize, and as far as I can tell you, he was given the Nobel Peace Prize partly because of his race, because we know that, although I don't, I mean, I've said I don't mind Barack Obama that much. He was not exactly a guy who was against, uh, you know, kind of illegal killings of uh, people abroad. You know, we know all kinds of drone strikes happened uh, uh, under his presidency. And I'm not sure if any... U.S. president is, if we can say, if while they are sitting president, if they really a massive proponents of peace. Also, that happened with the um, the Burman, uh, the Burmese lady Aung Suu Kyi, I think her name is. Uh, she was awarded the Nobel uh, Peace Prize, and then she, 
while she was, uh, I think she was Prime Minister or President of uh, Myanmar. And yeah. there was quite a lot of horrible things happened to uh, Muslim minority uh, in that country after she was awarded uh, the Peace right. Prize. So in a lot of ways, the, it's one of those things, people get, get it uh, awarded to them and then their subsequent actions don't really uh, live up to uh, what that award stands for. But I do think this is um, a bit of a poke in the eye of the Iranian regime. Uh, what's been happening there is, uh, especially to women who are fighting for their rights, is not great. We know that some women have been killed for just, you know, things like refusing to wear a headscarf. And, you know, I think in a free society, uh, you know, people, if you want to wear a headscarf, wear one. If you don't want to wear one, don't wear one. I think it's ridiculous that their laws making women wear headscarf. Even uh, in a country where there's a Muslim majority, people should still be able to have that choice. And we know there are things like the kind of morality police in Iran, which uh, go around, you know, in, uh, making sure that people uh, fulfill certain, uh, you know, uh, religious requirements and so on. So I think overall this is uh, obviously uh, uh, kudos for uh, this particular woman. And I think it's a good, uh, it's an award. I think uh, uh, I think the Nobel uh, Prize Committee made uh, is quite a good um, good selection, yeah. But overall, I'm not sure how uh, the significance of this award anymore. As I say, I think uh, sometimes it uh, goes to, it's sometimes a bit of a popularity com competition rather than going to people who've actually advanced the cause of peace around the world. No, I think that that um, uh, uh, particularly it's 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 peace prize, like rather less so it's prize for science and medicine and whatever. Um, peace has become sort of a stand-in for, you know, as you say, a kind of political statement. Um, I think that that uh, the the award to Barack Obama had a lot to do with uh, repudiating the George Bush years. Um, you know. Uh, I think someone someone pointed out that you know one actually has to sort of make peace before uh, 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 before one can be a peacemaker. Although one could have, one could be postmodern about this and say, well, you know, you created peace with you know out of nothing, and therefore it's a greater achievement. Um, but you know, there have been uh, there have been a number of others whose 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 achievements may be better uh, described as human rights based uh, i see someone in the um uh, in the chat has, has, has said that uh, that hitler uh, should might may as well have been given one actually in 1939 um a left-wing member of the swedish parliament uh made a sort of uh, satirical um uh, nomination of adolf hitler for the nobel peace prize um peace Peace, I think, is often going to be made by very, very, com very compromised people. So you know, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a complex issue. I know that that China, uh, uh, for a number of years, tried to try, try to set up an alternative, um, what they call the Confucius Prize for Peace. Um, I think it only went for about five years, during which they gave it to um, uh, to Vladimir Putin and Robert Mugabe, um, in, and Fidel Castro. Um, Apparently, no one actually went and collected it. In Fidel Castro's case, there was a, there was a Cuban student in China who uh, did the honors, and uh, Vladimir Putin was awarded it in part on the basis of the war in Chechnya because he kind of saw that this was a big threat, so he created peace by having a war, um, which is also quite postmodern. Well, um, I think we've got time for got time for one more. So, an issue that I have uh, been tracking for some time is, are the um, is 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 the uh, state of our borders 
And yesterday, the government launched its um, its border management agency because we know that it's just the business when we have problems in South Africa to uh, create a new a new institution, which will, I think, the our esteemed president said, doubtless, uh, you know, do wonders to 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 to, to control our borders. Um, and I see that uh, going across the Atlantic, uh, President Biden in the United States has uh, green uh, has, has given the green light to a construction of a section of the contentious border border fence that his predecessor set in motion, while saying, "Well, he absolutely doesn't want to do it, but you know they are they are contractually bound." So it seems borders going at borders being the the uh, uh, the flavor of the day, and I think this is going to feature now in, in our elections next year. Boris, your thoughts about this? Yeah, we've already seen, uh, I think the presence of uh, foreigners in South Africa is going to be quite a big election issue next year. We already know that opposition parties like Action SA and the Patriotic Alliance have been talking about the presence of foreigners in South Africa. We know the Gauteng ANC also recently said that there need to be quotas for foreigners uh, in the country, which, yeah, it's, you know, that's an issue for another day, I think. But it's uh, also pretty ridiculous uh, We've even seen, um, uh, and the problem with uh, this kind of thing is it has all kinds of knock-on effects. Uh, you know, the anti-foreigner pogroms that we've had in South Africa is because there's been quite a lot of um, uh, foreigners coming into South Africa, people who come here looking for better life from the rest of Africa and other parts of the world too often. And this is one of those things that comes down to, again, the ANC government not being able to manage issues properly. Uh, you know, any country, I, I think, we all know migration is in general good for a country. But, uh, you know, all, all the statistics, people who are moving, they generally uh, go-getters, they're people who have a little bit of capital behind them. But you can't have completely open borders, which effectively South Africa's had uh, for many years because there's been no management of borders. A lot of people have come to this country to look for better life. You can't blame them. You know, they come from terrible war-torn places often. Other times they're just coming for economic opportunities, which is also okay. But you can't have this kind of completely open migration, which I think in a lot of ways South Africa's had. And this has led to frustration uh, and foreigners being blamed for a lot of problems in South Africa. Although I don't think, uh, I think they just often scapegoated and that's exactly what's happening, uh, what the Gauteng ANC is doing. We they, we wouldn't have these problems if our, our borders were managed properly and if our economy was growing at five or 6% a year. Instead, our borders aren't managed properly and our economy is barely growing. It's definitely not keeping up with per capita economic growth, which means that we're all getting poorer every year. And people who see that they, they see they're getting poorer, they don't have jobs, and then they blame the Mozambique neighbor or the Congolese neighbor, or whatever the case might be. And this is something we've seen around the world. Outsiders are often scapegoated for problems in the country. And this is what's happened in South Africa. We I think we can all we all remember terrible. Uh, visuals we've seen when there have been anti-foreigner programs, people getting burned to death and so on. And as I say, <clears throat> this is all a very complex issue, but we can't blame people who are coming out to look for uh, better opportunities. This, the These kind of uh, violent incidents, at the end of the day, the, the blood is on the hands of the anti-government for not being able to manage government uh, for our borders properly, and also not for, for not being able to grow the economy. And we're not going to see the end of these kinds of problems. And it's actually disgraceful that the ANC government is coming up with these silly quotas for foreigners and whatever. That's not going to solve the issue. The only way you're going to solve the issue is to have a proper system of letting people into this country and of growing the economy. But we know that we're not going to see any of those things. 
Yeah, look, I think that this is this is, I say, something that that I that I've kept my um, kept my eye on. Um, I know of at least two cases, personal personal to myself, that um, uh, where highly skilled people, you know, legally resident in the country, were unable to get permanent residence, despite being married to locals, having children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and so they and their South African dependents ultimately just decamped abroad, you know, taking their skills and their tax contributions with them. Um, I think that, 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 that what we're facing here is more than just a question of borders, although that is that is a part of it. Now, like you, I'm in favor of, of, of a very liberal um, uh, migration policy, but I do think it needs to be a policy and it does need to be some, um, uh, some degree of selectivity. Um, I think... In America, you've sort of got the, you've kind of got a, got a, got a bit of a, a bit of a reverse that, uh, you know, almost, almost the blowback on an issue that both Democrats and Republicans in the past had both shown some level of, of, of congruence on. I remember, you know, uh, Obama, contrary to what is often said, wasn't a pushover on immigration. Neither was Clinton. Uh, George W. Bush was actually fairly open to the idea of getting a, a deal with Mexico that would have made it much easier for Mexicans to come in. Um, but you know, it sort of became a case of well, Trump talks the wall, therefore we've got to talk talk open borders. And now you have a situation where a city like New York says they they literally can't take anymore. Um, you know, you 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 need to have some sort of planning for for uh, uh, for the influx of people. And a country like South Africa, I think, is no different. Um, by all means, uh, generous, um, uh, lenient, liberal. But with some, with some degree of control and with the capacity of the society to to to, to absorb it, and as you say, that's the five or six percent uh, percent growth rate. We should focus, I think, less on the fact that uh, there's an economic crisis in Sudan or Ethiopia, or you know, a political crisis in Zimbabwe that the South African regime did a great deal to underwrite to our own economic cost, um, and sort of ask, well, you know, isn't the isn't the real crisis here? Um, because, you know, here's, here's an interesting thing that, that, that studies of migration show. As countries become wealthier, they don't necessarily stop sending, uh, sending immigrants. That may actually accelerate as people have the money and the, the horizons to travel. You know, you don't want to wait a generation to live, you know, West European lifestyle if you can simply decamp to, 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 to Western Europe. You may not want to wait for Zimbabwe to recover in 30 years if you can simply go and enjoy the life you want, uh, you know, in, 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 um, in Messina. So this is something we something we're stuck with in these half-assed uh, semi-solutions. I don't think I don't think take us anywhere. And I think that really is um, is where we're going to have to leave it for today. Um, thank you everyone for coming. Uh, thank you everyone for being here and uh, for for your kind attention. And hopefully on Monday, uh, Nicholas will be here to 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 guide us through. Goodbye. <laughs>